This episode of Drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Please be advised that today's interview contains some confronting content. It won't be appropriate for everyone. I'm Leila McKinnon, and welcome to Drive, a podcast about driven women delivering in their chosen fields in partnership with Uber Eats for a second year. Each week, I speak to strong and passionate women who are leading their lives their way. I've been a journalist for nearly 30 years, and I've interviewed some of the biggest celebrities in the world. But along the way, I've discovered that the most interesting stories often come from people who we've never or very rarely heard from before. Aminata Conte Biger is one of the most joyful people you could ever meet. You would never suspect she'd been abducted, raped, and had seen the worst humankind has to offer in the war in Sierra Leone. She's a survivor, but she's also thrived, and she's leading a passionate, purposeful life. Aminata spoke to me on finding light after trauma. Aminata, welcome to Drive. You had a wonderful childhood, a very privileged childhood, Mm -hmm. in a beautiful big house with a loving parent, and then came the war. Yes. That war had kind of been in the background for years, hadn't it? But then when it came, it it hit suddenly like lightning. Were you worried in the years preceding or was it something that just suddenly came at you when the rebels came to your town? We were not worried um, because I live in the capital city of Freetown and we've heard story. We see refugees coming to the capital city. And because it's taken that long, because the war had been going on since 1990, and then they entered the capital city. So from 1990 to 1990. 99? Yes, yes. 1999. Sorry. Um, so it's taken about eight to nine years for it to come. So we're kind of used to the normality, hearing stories, knowing of what will happen. Even my book talking about if I was kidnapped, what will happen. So we have kind of ideas what we should be doing. So when, but when it came, the night that day in January 6th, when the rebels uh, attacked the capital city, it felt they've already been in the city. They were already living there because they they were not in the army. They were civilians, these guys, and, and they were already in. So when they came that night, uh, that morning, when they entered the capital city, it felt like they just came from the cloud and dropped. So... It wasn't they're coming nearer, no, they're going to be here soon. No, yes. They were there they and were they there. just hit. Because you could not tell between a rebel and a civilian. We woke up, we could see the smokes and we could see people, uh, the horror of people being burned. That was one of another signature part of the war. People being burned in the house and people running away and being shot. So you're seeing people being lit on fire and the horror and the voice of a family in the house just being burned. And I always describe it as you, you're seeing a horrible, you can't get away from it because I was sort of, in a way, mind safe in those moments. Because every minute that you're safe, it, it's like 10 years. I could see it, but we can't take our eyes off not watching 
that. Yes. yes. I don't know if you, somebody, it's a survival mode. It's a survival mode. You still can't hide from it what you're seeing because you don't know if it's going to happen in the next second to you and thinking that that's, that's going to be my life in the next minute. But we're watching from the house because my house, the way our windows were tinted and it was bulletproof. So we could see people from the outside, but they could not see it from the inside. The smell is what we keep getting the body, and, and, and that's what we live for those couple of weeks because all the houses around my house that was big was being burned. But this house that was huge was just standing there and with over a 1,000 people living in it. I don't want to go too far into it, but the moment when you had to leave your father, mm. uh, there was a really a lot of bravery involved yeah. then. Tell mm. me about what your thinking was when, when you had to let go of his hand. The younger rebels is the the kids are the one that you can be really scared of because they've been brainwashed and they they've smoked so they would just even looking at them they would just shoot you, and one of these rebel Darami looked at me, I knew he was coming for me. My instant reaction was to let go, without having conversation as he's walking towards me. When he said you come here, I let go of my dad and walk towards um, him. For me, I've always been grateful that he didn't stay. As he took me, he walked away moving on because I didn't know what my dad would have done. So I didn't, I didn't look back at my dad's face. Mm. And the reason why I let go, it was because my dad would have fought. And I knew that if that happened, they would have given me a gun to shoot him or they would have raped me in front of him or they would have... Uh, asked him to shoot me. So these were the things that happened. So because we knew of the story, so I sort of let go. So then he walked with me and the other girls that he had kidnapped straight away. So that is something I feel like there's a blessing in that because I did not want to look at my dad's face. Did you ever discuss that moment with your father years later? No. No. When, um, When I got released, I was released on television and that's how my family found that I was alive. And I, and I remember coming home and my dad has been waiting and he was, has been waiting outside celebrating. And I remember walking in the gate of our house and seeing my father. Um, I did not recognize him. He was, he was gone and he was in between this phase of um, joy and brokenness. And for me, that's the most painful part because he was such a beautiful, joyful human being, especially around his children. And I saw he has his cheeky smile, but um, he didn't want to cry as if he was not happy. And then he would just break down, um, not knowing between the joy and, and the sorrow which one to take. And I, and I always say I felt his brokenness, but his strength transformed through me because I didn't know where, where I've got the strength. But I was able to be more stronger for him. But um, those three days that I was with him, I could hear him cry every day. And he was never, um, just never the same person. Years later, when you became a parent yourself, did you get have an even deeper understanding yeah. of what he went through? Yeah, I understood one thing that was very clear with him. I think he would have wished that he had buried me, but not knowing as a parent when your child is kidnapped, but then taken away from your hands, but not knowing what is happening in the unknown, I think that's what breaks him more. Not knowing if I was alive, but now that he knew that they've taken something away from his daughter, and I knew that something has been broken and taken away from him. To moon a child, it gives a parent a peace. They're at peace, but he didn't have that. 
I remember when I came back, none of my friends were visiting him because every time he sees somebody that looks like me, he would really just cry, like almost like an owl, just cry. Um, and a lot of people stopped visiting him just to keep him at peace. But yeah, your time when you were taken uh, with everything you went through, just everything terrible that you could possibly imagine you went through, you did. What was it in you that you weren't broken by it? You're the person that I'm sitting Mm. with here today. For me, it was the love of my father and my faith. I had to find something that was good, that was all about goodness. The way I was brought up, and some of the stories that I've heard in the Bible were all of goodness. I knew there was goodness there. So That you didn't get your faith shaken by all the, no, the evil, all the wickedness no. that you I were? I had my friends who pray. We have some pocket Bible that is always being given by Jehovah's Witness who pray. It was the one thing that we had that we had to hold on to so tight that sometimes it can even make us laugh. My girlfriends and I we will laugh in those terrible times because sometimes we'll be crying and crying. You have to find something that has a bit light. And whatever light there is, you hold on to it. And just wanted to see my dad's face was something that was giving me hope. But also, I knew my dad. I felt that he was struggling. So I was really wanted to see him again. So my father's love and my faith was something that I've always hold on to until this day. You wrote in the in this book, Rising Heart, which is absolutely amazing, and I recommend it to anybody who hasn't read it, that there were people that you saw in that situation, understandably, had their moral compass spin yeah. out of control, and yeah. then it was difficult for them to ever find themselves again. Yeah. So it was your faith, yes. your family, and the friends that you had with you yes. that, that let you hold on to that. Yes, we, we had something really special that even the rebels thought that we were actually siblings. We were sisters, and till this day we talk, uh, we all live in a really fulfilled life, knowing what happened. That relationship kept us together. In, in, in every phase of life, it doesn't matter what difficulty we go through, we have to have one thing that we hold on to. I think that's where our resilience and our hope for fighting and striving comes from. And for me, it was having, my father was in there, but I have friends that we were going through similar things, um, that the question why me wasn't coming up as much, I think it came more when the, the rebel that kidnapped me, Darami, wanted me more than them. That's where I question, I've always questioned that why, what was about me that he wanted so badly. And do you, did you come to a conclusion? I never did. I know that it was because of his obsession that the first time um, he raped me, I had not been with a man. So he felt that that's superstitious belief. That is for his own conscience because there was nothing wrong with me that I didn't provoke anything, so which is what a lot of women who have gone through abuse and rape, um, two things that we shared, um, it doesn't matter what, where it's your home or war, um, it's shame and guilt. I think all cultures, to some extent, yes. rape brings shame yes. to the people yes. who've gone through it. So it did take you many years mm. to talk about the word rape yes. um, and to overcome that shame. And it's important, isn't it? Because if you're shamed, you're often silenced. Yes. And you, and there's no power in that, is there's there? There's no power in that, no. It's quite exciting at the moment in Australia and around the world mm. that women, besides yourself, uh, other women who have gone through rapes or sexual assaults, 
are speaking up and, and owning their power, aren't they? Yes, there's power in that, but there's also liberation. Uh, the freedom of when you get to that place, it's quite something that you would not want to compromise at all because it brings such a freedom that we, in all part of life, are wanted. And once you feel that, when you, once you recognize that it's not my fault, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I'm so grateful to, to Grace Tame and to mm. Brittany Higgins and, and to yourself because you're making the world safer for other women and for yes. all of our yes. daughters. Yes, absolutely. As we know, millions and a lot of women who can never do that. But when they hear somebody who looks like them telling their story, you are telling another woman's story that person's story. So there's a, there's a hope for those women to uh, start taking full aim to move forward because you're in prison. Your body, your whole mind is in prison. It doesn't matter how much success you have. If you've not let go of that imprisonment, it will continue to steal your joy and really take part of your life the way you navigate through life. That is really great that women are putting themselves out there and recognizing that I did not do anything. I did not give permission um, for you to do that to me or hit me. Once they come to that point of doing that, they are actually making ways for other women who will never stand in a platform and do that. There's shame, but you also speak about empathy and forgiveness. How do you feel empathy for people who abducted you, who raped you, who broke Mm. your father? How do you forgive that? Uh, forgiveness is a choice. It, it is really a choice. And the choice is understanding that you're forgiving, not just someone, you're forgiving yourself because when we are part of um, that life that has happened, what has been taken away from you, you can't forgive somebody without including yourself in it. You're not giving it any permission that you're okay with what it did to you. You're saying that I cannot change what has happened to me. So you're owning up to your, your story and embracing it and embracing a story is part of healing, to know that what had happened to me cannot be changed, but I can own that story, I can love it, what has happened to me, and really move forward with it. You can move on. You know from your experience how thin the layer of civilization can be and what can lie beneath it, how badly some people are capable mm-hmm. of behaving. Yeah. Does that affect your day-to-day life in terms of trust and and how you feel about your children and what they're going to navigate in the future now that you've seen what the world can offer, the worst it can offer? Sometimes it does because we, I, I live, as I said, I came to a country like Australia. The intention was um, UN, UNHCR said to me, you're coming to a country where you're going to be safe. Me thinking that the West is very civilized. I didn't know what I'm hearing now happened the West is civilized. So when I came and then I realized, oh, this happens. And I came here for safety, knowing that this sort of things can happen in, in offices, in workplace. That is something that really blew my mind. So now with the children that I have and the voice that I have, I try to navigate through that by really saying that, yes, there's the illusion in the West that we are civilized. And when other countries like Afghanistan treat a woman badly, we're the first person to talk about it, but not in our own backyard because we have to proceed that we're civilized. So I've come into that middle ground where I know what civilization is, what humanity is, and how I use that is my responsibility. I think that's the, how I change that to the people around me 
any people that I can speak for. So that is something that is getting clearer and clearer and not be really consumed by the illusion that we are so much better than others. Yeah, and there was a time not so long ago when it felt like we were taking for granted some of the rights that pioneers of feminism had fought for for us in terms of trying to get equal pay and maternity leave. But now the fight is back on, isn't it? Yes. And it really is bringing to the public spotlight the dangers to women in the home or in the workplace mm. from violence or, or sexual assault. And we really have to keep being noisy about it. Yes. Yeah, it is. And we, you have to be willing to fight for something so much that you, in a way, when I say willing to die for it, meaning that you're willing to lose something for it. That's where the value is. Women have fought for equal pay for so many things. And for me, I have to fight first. It has to be a realistic. I have to fight for race first because that's the battle that I have to go through. But we have to be in a place we hold ourselves really accountable. We, we looked at ourselves and, and question and question us because that's when we can leave a long-lasting legacy or else we will be doing this fight in the next 20 and 50 years and the cases will be worse. So we have to make this really radical change but in our everyday lives, not just, oh, in workplace I'm going to speak. No, at the supermarket, if you hear something, if you see, if you see something that you know in your consciousness that person is feeling less, it's not by raising your voice. You have a responsibility to go. That's not empowerment. And I don't believe in the word in empowerment. I always say responsibility. You use your responsibility and your privilege saying that I can say something. And we have to owe it to ourselves, our standard, and say, I will say something. And you can say, don't speak to that person like that. That is enough. You have really put a value on that person's life. And we've got to do it every day. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back after a message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is proud to support Feed Appeal, who are dedicated to improving the lives of people experiencing hunger or food insecurity. The work of Feed Appeal and their partner charities has always been crucial in providing meals for struggling Australians. But since COVID-19, there has been a sharp increase in food relief requests, with many Aussies reaching out to ask for help for the first time in their lives. Throughout the pandemic, Feed Appeal have worked incredibly hard to maintain their vital services and innovate new ways to help those in need. And as part of the ongoing partnership between Uber Eats and Feed Appeal, more than 760,000 meals have been delivered to vulnerable households. If you're looking for help or know someone in your community who is, please reach out to one of Feed Appeal's partner charities in your state at feedappeal.org.au. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Aminata conte Bajer. You said in the book that when you moved to Australia, you didn't even know you were black. No, <laughs> I did not. And I... it was a shock to you that people looked at you differently when you went to school yes. in, in Western Sydney. You weren't exactly insulted, and, no, and yeah, no. but it was, it was there, wasn't it, the racism? It was there, but I think it was because how my dad raised us, because my dad is one of those fathers, strangely, that would put us in the most uncomfortable places. My twin sisters in London, they went to school in Scotland, in a boarding school. So he would just put you in a place where you don't have anybody that look like you. So I had this confidence in me, but I didn't know that I had for a certain reason. So when I came to Australia, going to school, so when I was asked questions, people were curious about me. 
I was curious also about why they're thinking that way because my dad was a businessman. We had white people coming all the time to our house from London. So I was not curious about that. So when the curiosity started coming, I think it was more question as to if I have seen a lion. And I'd say, no, no, I've seen a lion, but it's only when I came to Australia in Tarango Zoo. <laughs> and, and I think it was just this question, oh, do you eat rat? And I remember thinking to myself, why are they asking? Because that's a poison. We think, in Syria, we go like, you can't, nobody eats rat. No, of course, nobody so does. So it didn't make sense to me why they were asking. So I was curious as to why until I was home one time and I was watching a TV, a World Vision's advertisement coming. I saw this boy holding a rat. Ah. And I go, oh, it's what they've seen. So I remember I was getting Centrelink $270. I called World Vision, start donating. Did you? Because I when just, you had that little money? Yeah, because I just feel like she can't, that child cannot. So I sponsored a child from Senegal and Switzerland in, in Africa because they can't eat rats. So I start understanding why are people thinking of that. So in perception of black people start really making. So I didn't know anything about racism. Mm. I didn't know. And I'm guessing that they didn't assume that you lived in a big house with no, servants. No, there was no. <laughs> nobody you know, assumed that. Watching, what movies did you watch We used to watch dad? James Bond because my daddy was so <laughs> fascinated about. So we used to drink those beautiful, like when I go to the high tea, that's the teacup that we use. Yes. Like with the flowering and, 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 and did biscuit. people assume you, you were living in some kind of little hush? Yeah, like on a so world they vision. thought I sleep. Somebody said to me one time, I will never forget, oh, do you sleep next to the lion? <laughs> so I'm thinking, and I watched Tarzan and I think, oh yes, Tarzan, that's a white person in a jungle that can come communicate lion that we don't communicate. So I started making sense of that all. But it was not like a race. I think it was children that was curious about what they've been taught. So I didn't take that as it didn't affect me at all. But then I think it was more when I started being more adult, starting to build in my foundation that the racist came because I was speaking in so much confidence in what I want to do. And I could see the, oh, but you don't have that. You don't have a qualification. You don't have this. But for my dad, it was different. Whatever you want to do, you can be of it. As a victim of war and and a refugee, a survivor, um, somebody who's made their own beautiful place in this world, how are you raising your children mm. to be strong with any challenges? Hopefully they don't have any challenges that come anywhere near mm. what you've gone through in your life. But how do you bring them up to face a world that can be difficult or hostile? I raise my kids by not sh- um, giving them this bubble of life that the world out there is all glorious and all kind. But I raise my kids more than anything before any academic to be kind, to treat another human being the way you want to be treated is the number one rule at my house. I always say to my children, if you want to say something not good, bite your tongue. It's very important because I have been able to live a life where the way I was brought up, but also the life that I live in Australia, surround a lot of people who are very well off. And I've known that money, it's good. But for me, the legacy that I always wanted to leave with my children is how you make another human being feel. The way you speak to a beggar in the street is the same tone you speak to somebody in a mansion. Even when I go to my kids' school, the first thing I ask, I said, I would say to the teacher, academic is secondary for me. I want to know how my child is treating another person, but I always teach them to speak up. I tell my children, nobody tell you who you are. You have been tamed at home. Nobody's going to tame you when you're out. You should be sure of who you are. But that value that you put upon your life, 
it's the same value you put up on anybody's life. So that's something I want to pass on because that's what my father did. That is the gift that you can give your children, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. Have you read uh, Magda Shabansky's book, the Australian comedian. She, no. Well, she, her father was in the Second World War and he killed people in the Second World War. He was a Polish citizen and it kind of clouded her childhood and it's a, it's a really interesting book mm. because she couldn't work out some aspects of how he was raising her and she finally, it dawned on her that he was raising her to be a survivor because he had been through these horrors and he wanted her to be tough yes. and strong. And I kind of, when I asked you about raising your children, was wondering mm. whether you were raising them to survive situations, yeah. but you didn't. You said, I want them to be kind. Yeah. Has that ever gone through your mind? You know, what do they need if they get in a situation where they need to survive? I don't want them to live a life where they're thinking about surviving all the time. No. That is a sad life, you know. So for me, I, I raise them more to know who they are. Like my daughter asked me this morning, oh, mama, is it okay if I get disappointed if somebody was going to do something they don't? I say, yeah, you have a right to be disappointed. But are you holding on to that disappointment because you don't know why they did not stick to their promise? They might be sick. And that teaches empathy. What, yes, where is that empathy. person? So yes. I'm always in that place where I had to explain that empathy becomes gratitude. You're saying, yes, I feel this, but thank you anyway that you promised to do something, but you didn't do it. Like, you know, so those are my two practices my daily practice in life, empathy and gratitude. Gratitude gives you so much, doesn't it? Because oh, it, it, it's a it, magnet. <laughs> yes. Isn't it funny that yeah. if you are grateful for what you have, yeah. then you're not missing you're what not you miss- don't have? Yeah, you don't, yeah. No, I think, I think sometimes people are like, oh, when you use the gratefulness so much, you know some words you use it and people are like, oh, yes, you're grateful. But it's such Hashtag a... Hashtag blessed. I see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a... Oh, it, it, it's lighting you up, you know, it lighting you up. And also gratitude is you saying that I'm not able to control the other things, but this is what I have now, you know, the power of now. I love that book because you only, we only have now. If I, I might leave you today and somebody might say, guess what, Aminata is gone. And that's reality of life. I don't have what happened to me. I don't have tomorrow. And gratitude is one thing, and you could sit back and be grateful for the wonderful life you have and the family you have, mm. but you also have purpose, don't yes. you? Yes. You have a reason, yes. a very good reason, yes. to get up in the morning. Tell me about um, some of the very young women, some of the disadvantaged women, mm. and, and what the Aminata Maternal Foundation does for them. The young girls that we have, they are girls between 11 years old and 19. And this is because of Ebola, when in country, uh, teenage pregnancy went up to 66%. And because there was no planning to do it, and the girls were pregnant. So we provide um, education tools. So we call them the Dream Team Girls because we want them to have a vision of what is possible out there. Some of these girls that I've met, you will look at their faces and they've just had a baby. It will look like you're holding just a, a tissue paper. That's how they will hold the baby because they, they don't know what to do. You can ask them, give me your child. In a heartbeat, they will give that child to you. Right, wow. Nobody does that in the West. Yes. Because they're so, they don't even know how that baby has come out of them. When they're having the baby, the nurses and the midwife are fighting with it because they just realize you're having baby to that way. Really? Yes. And some of them are having their breasts coming out for the first time because of the pregnancy. So there is... It's sad. It, it cripples me when I see that the, the West, the life we're living in the 21st century, 
this is still happening because of no education. And in Syria, when a girl is pregnant and have a baby, you can't go back to school. And as you said before, the war in Sierra Leone has been forgotten. You, you mentioned Sierra Leone, people remember, think of poverty, blood diamond, and really Ebola. But what the war had done, the, the world has not gone back to able to support like the way country like Rwanda and Chad and other countries have had. We've not had that publicity. So these girls are sleeping in the street. So we go and get some of the girls that have slept in the street that have been kicked out of their home because the parents have said, I can't feed another mouth. Right, and so they're we, very thin. They're and... very thin. They do not know what is happening between tomorrow or this hour. So you take them to come and they follow you. We give them transportation. We feed them in the hospital also. So the only reason why they will come to the hospital is because they have transportation. We pay their transportation to come, and then they come three times a week. So the hospital feeds them, and then most of the girls have had fistula. So our hospital that we partner with is the second busiest maternal hospital in the country. And that's that's when the bladder or yes. the bowel leaks? Leaks. So because uh, of the damage from the birth? Because of the damage. Because a woman or a girl, one of the girls that I've met, had gone through labor for 12 days. So also it can paralyze them when they're spine because the baby has been pushing so hard and then it has broken their pelvis. So once oh. that baby comes out dead... So then they urinate on themselves completely. So the hospital that we partner with is the only hospital in the country that does the fistula operation. Sierra Leone is a population of um, 7.8 million. It's a small country. But I think for me, what I, I focus on with the foundation, it's what can be done in that country. I mean, Africa is the negativities out there, 100%. So for me, I want to focus on the solution. There's a problem and there's a solution. The hospital we work with, 96% of the staff are Sierra Leonean. It's a private hospital that provide completely free services and is the standard of Scotland and England um, standard of services. That's extraordinary. It's really mind-blowing. When you go back to Sierra Leone, how do you feel? Is it home or is there mixed emotions? Do you kind of get sideswiped at times by the trauma that you went through? I have never been that worried about going back because I think I made a decision in my life that I would never live in fear. If I have to live a short period of life, time and that is life fulfilled, that's what I want to live. So I've never really gone back and been frightened of that. And Sierra Leone is very peaceful. So, But when I went, I remember the first time I went because for me doing what I'm doing, it was just me wanting to give back and continue the legacy my dad left. I don't expect anything from people. But what I caught back, it was very shock for me because these girls, they were surprised to see somebody that looked like them coming to help. And I didn't expect that. It was joyful, but it was sad for me that they used to a Western person going to help. I understand. So they and grew- what a great thing, though, for them to yes. see a role model, yes. somebody who has... Power. Power. Yes. So they did not. I remember all of the managing directors said, I Googled you. Your picture keep coming up. I said, she can't be because she's young. She should be enjoying life. Why does she want to do that? And I think that was when I knew that I was not only helping, I was changing their mindset because most of these girls have not gone through what I've gone through during the war. They're younger. And then for them to see somebody that looks like me and not even knowing my story and feel like I can be of that because we all know representation is very important. I did not expect at all that there's something that light in them that they can be that. And that has been a gift for me and that's what keeps me going also that we all, all have looked at people that makes us feel that if she can do that, or if he can do that, I can do that. And if you plant that seed in somebody's life, 
you don't need to know what, what they are, the world they're going to change, but your seed is planting more life. I think that is fulfilling to me. It gives me joy every time, and I feel quite every single day humble that I am part of this contribution. This is not mine. I'm just contributing part of humanity. If forgiveness and empathy, acceptance and gratitude, but that trauma that you went through... Is it still there? Do you mm. smell something or see something and, and feel it again? I do. I do smell and I do see. I physically get there. Since the war, I lost the sense of my smell. But when I tell my story, I will physically see the, the dust or where, where certain things have happened. I get tired after, but I have never been re-triggered. I think it's recognizing that this is my story. I have taken a long time to be where I'm at today. And I've told my story when I was ready in my book when I was ready. So everything that I've done, it's in my own time. It's not in because I want people to hear it and I want it to raise me in that platform. And even my story in the book, I wanted it to be raw. I wanted it to have love, frustration, anger and experiences in Australia, in Sierra Leone, in, in the things that I do in daily life. But for some reason, it takes, it cannot dissolve back in my body, but I know that it is there. It, it, I don't see it so much as trauma. I see it more as my story. But I think for me, trauma comes in different shapes. Most of the time, it can come from different in- incidents. It can come from the life that I'm living now in Australia. Certain things happen. It triggers me. But it's not necessarily because I'm telling my story. I would think of the smell and then I would live here and I'll think about this conversation. I feel really, really blessed that I've had that. In your book, Rising Heart, you do, you tell everything. You, it seems like... And the way that you say it and the way that your ghostwriter, Juliet, a friend of mine, wrote it, it takes you there. Was it therapeutic or was it difficult or was it both? It was all. (laughs) It was all. It was was really all. I remember Juliet said to me, I'm going to take you out for lunch today. We don't cry. I interview about four ghostwriters, four of the best. And Juliet, I just saw her photo. And I remember I was going to a conference and I said to my friend, I think this is her. It was very important to me, the kind of personality I have. I don't like people treating me as a victim. It's something that I don't like. I don't know. I had this feeling by just seeing a photo. I didn't know who she was. I've never heard of her. I didn't even read anything about her. I knew that she allowed me to be. And I remember most of those times when I would cry, we will continue recording. And I liked that, that I was not going to stop. And then somebody's going, oh, are you okay? Let's stop. She never once stopped. She'll continue the recording. And that's when I knew that I got, um, I don't have just a, a, a ghostwriter anymore. I have a friend because those times are very important to let the emotion out. So I had all of those emotions. Most of the time I would be crying. So I didn't know getting another page where I'm laughing. You know, that's life. The book is called Rising Heart. It's yeah. magnificent. And as you say, so, so raw and powerful. How can we help? How can we donate to the Maternal Foundation? So you go to aminatafoundation.org. Um, you see um, the regular donation, which is something that really sustained the, the foundation. It's a small organization that just started. It's been a hassle <laughs> doing this, but again, it's rewarding. So really, any support around donation and any support around services, we, we work with volunteers. We've only been run by volunteers. I'm the only one they pay staff because the money does justice but I think we need to be something sustainable for the the mothers and babies of Sierra Leone so that they mothers have the similar experience of joy and then we just say no no mother or a child should die due to poverty so yes 
keep hustling, keep being oh, joyful. Oh, <laughs> Enjoy this crazy, beautiful oh, dance. Yes, yeah, I love it. And thank you, Amina. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Drive is a future women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. And we'd love it if you could leave a rating and review as it really helps us to reach more people. We'll see you next week.